Balancing Point Podcast. This is episode 47. Welcome to Balancing Point Podcast, where you will experience the captivating world of professional ballet. On this show, you will hear what it takes to make it in the exclusive world. Each guest will share with you their struggles, their I've made it moments, and their advice for success. And ultimately, you will learn what it is really like to live your dream. Join your host, Kimberly Falker, and today's inspiring guests as they take you on a behind-the-scenes journey into ballet. Hello and welcome to Balancing Point Podcast. My name is Kimberly Falker and thanks for joining me today. But before I get started with my guest, I did want to ask you to be sure to stop by my Facebook page where I've made some really exciting announcements about some of my previous guests and their projects and events that they are involved in. And one of those projects that I would like to highlight today is uh, my most recent guests, As LaCour and David Fernandez, who are busily preparing for their event April 28th. And the name of the event is Some Dance Company Dash Encore. And if you didn't have a chance to listen to their interview, be sure to go back and listen to episode 46, where they kind of share a little bit more about the project and what they're raising money for. But in the meantime, they do have a Kickstarter starter campaign that will be active through early April and I know it would mean the world to them for you to take a moment and make a donation and you can actually make a donation as little as a dollar and every dollar helps Uh, your money will go towards the event and putting it on with rehearsal space the stage the lighting all of it that goes into a very special night filled with amazing dancers But if you want to learn a little bit more, you can go to my Facebook page where you'll find their link. All right, so then let's get started with today's inspirational guest. Her name is Amy Seward, who is yet another amazing woman choreographer, and she's also the artistic director of Imagery, a contemporary dance company out of San Francisco. And Amy has so many outstanding words of wisdom and accomplishments that I really think it's best to just jump right into the interview where you can learn more. All right, well, Amy, I've told the listeners a little bit about you, but can you share a little bit about you, kind of where you grew up, your history in dance, and how you wound up in choreography? Sure. Um, Well, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I went to the School for Creative and Performing Arts there. And part of what we did um, as dance majors is you had to choreograph. So, you know, your senior year, you had to make a piece. Um, and even before then, there was one point where I wasn't dancing in a show, so I choreographed a piece on two of my friends, and it was presented in the spring performance. So that would have been when I was 16. So when people ask, when did you do your first ballet, I say, well, I, I was 16, and it wasn't any good. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but And that was part of your curriculum, or it was something that you kind of felt within you? The first time, it was just something I wanted to do, but um, but all of us had to do it by by graduation. Everyone had to choreograph. Okay. Um, but what was really great um, is at a young age, to me, choreography wasn't something other people did. It was something, um, you know, it was very attainable, and, you know, we were really lucky that, you know, the studios, if they were open and free, we could use them. It wasn't 
we didn't have the issue of getting space, getting dancers, everything else. You know, I just I choreographed on my two best friends at the time. Um, you know, so from an early age, it was a very attainable thing to do. And then um, I think I'm also very fortunate. I have um, an aunt who has was a Broadway dancer and choreographer and very, very different career path. But I think I also, from a young age, realized, oh, you can have a career. You can make a living doing choreography. Now, when you were in um, high school and choreographed, did they teach you kind of the skill set or was it... I mean, were there steps that you learned to include when you create a piece or really were you on your own? We were on our own. It wasn't, there wasn't, um, and granted, this was a very long time ago. It may be more developed as a curriculum now at the school. Um, No, we were really on our own, which was great, too. We were, we wanted to, you know, explore our own voices and create to the music that we wanted to create, too. And, you know, that was really appreciated. Now, did you... Your first piece, was it to um, classical music, or do you remember what the music was? It was classical music. It was a a trumpet concerto, which is, um, you know, years later married a trumpet player, so I don't know if it was Oh, that's ironic. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of a neat story. (laughs) So then after high school, what happened? Um, I... uh, Bounced around in, on the East Coast in New York, New Jersey for a while. Had, went to the Joffrey School, had a couple apprenticeships in Jersey, and then ended up in Sacramento Ballet. And so when you went to New York, did you have kind of a intention or a vision of what you wanted to do? Were you doing auditions, or was it just like, I'm just going to be in a city where art is? I wanted to be a professional ballet dancer. Okay. So, to me where you went to do that. Um, did you have guidance or did you kind of have a uh, plan of action or how does one do it when you're that young? Um, I did. I went to, to college at SUNY Purchase for one semester and um, it wasn't the right fit for me at that time. Uh, it was uh, very, again, this is a long time ago and I'm sure the program has, has changed, but at that, that moment I felt like it was really great if you wanted to be a modern dancer but not if you wanted to be a ballet dancer. Yeah, I think there's. I think that's a struggle for a lot of dancers that I've heard that there's not as many programs that really cater to classical ballet. Yeah, well, and this is why I say it was a long time ago because since then I know, um, you know, personally I've worked with two dancers, um, uh, Joseph Copley and Pong Yun Chen, who's with Atlanta Ballet. Who, I mean, she is so stunning as a dancer and can do everything who she can do ballet she can do modern she can do contemporary she's i mean she's just such a fierce powerhouse of a dancer and i know did she go there then went through the entire programs oh neat okay well that's good to know i feel like the programs are changing and having and really producing some fantastic ballet dancers more recently which is great to see that's really great to see yeah yeah, so uh, I had gone there because I knew I wanted to be new- where, near New York, and then I realized that um, it wasn't the place for me. I went to Joffrey School, which was at that time in New York. So at the time, the company was still in New York, I should say. Um, went to Joffrey School and then was fortunate in, in getting these apprentices, apprenticeship, uh, um, getting these apprentice positions 
and starting to really get experience in companies, working in rehearsal, everything else. And then, um, and then was really fortunate in coming out to California. Um, I just uh, love Northern California. Um, it's I'm so happy out here. So um, randomly did an audition and ended up moving across the country. And so you were at you were an apprentice at Jaffrey, but then you began to do auditions for a professional position. I wasn't actually an apprentice at Joffrey. I was at school and then through that program actually ended up doing an apprenticeship with Garden State Ballet and then Princeton Ballet, which is now American Repertory Ballet. Um, and then from there went for a full company position in, in Sacramento. And I ended up dancing in Sacramento for eight years. And then from there... Uh, did another audition and ended up in Smewan Ballet in San Francisco where I ended up dancing for nine more years. So, um, you know, um, I always say that dancer years are like dog years, like, you know, <laughs> so if you do the math, I think I retired when I was about 102. I had, I, I danced for 19 years. That's a really long time. Oh, that is a full career in dance for sure. Yeah, I was really lucky. Now, when you were going back to when you were in high school, um, you were trained in classical ballet then? When you classical were... and modern uh, with an emphasis on gram technique. Okay. And then did you do summer intensives? Did you kind of have a track that a lot of dancers do nowadays? Oh, yes. I, uh, um, I mean, I spent a really uh, influence, influential summer at Milwaukee Ballet when I was I think I was 17, and I was coming back from a stress fracture in my foot. So, uh, I mean, it was it was really great. It got me back on track and really focused on on dancing. It was it was a really good place for me. And it's funny because now I've actually uh, I went back there last year, and I'll be going there this year to choreograph. And um, it's the same building that I walked into you know, when I was a kid. So it's it's great to be back there. So then, after your nine years with Suman Ballet, what you know, kind of what transpired then? Um, well, when I was with Smeewen, uh, Michael was, uh, Michael Smeewen, the director, um, was really fantastic. He knew I choreographed, and he came to one of the shows I was presenting in, and he really liked what I did. He thought I was really talented. And when did you start choreographing then again? Oh, sorry, I guess I skipped some. Um, so when I was in Sacramento, I was choreographing. They had uh, a company that was part of the Regional Dance America, uh, which is, you know, um, usually high school kids. So I had a second company that was part of that. So I would choreograph on them. I was choreographing on in a studio showcase they did called Beer and Ballet. And how'd that start? Just kind of you saw an opportunity and took it while you were dancing? Or where did you find that chance? There was, you know... Uh, I think I just raised my hand and said I want to choreograph from the second company, and okay. I, you know, um, uh, same thing with the when they started the beer and ballet program. It's like, well, who wants to choreograph? And I was like, oh, okay, yes, I like to do that. I'll do that. Um, again, I just what was great is I got a lot of experience practicing being a choreographer with no one paying attention. Right. You know, really got to practice and develop a craft before, you know, years before I went to San Francisco and, and really had, um, you know, a platform to, to show 
um, you know, I got, I really got to try anything I wanted to do. And even if it was a horrible idea, I got to try it and learn from it. And, and the audience base was not that big. So that was, um, I'm really lucky for that, really fortunate. Um, and then in 99, which is um, the same year that I, I moved to, from Sacramento to San Francisco, um, Ricky Weiss at Carolina Ballet had seen a video I had done on one of these RDA companies and he really liked it and he invited me out and gave me my first professional commission Carolina Ballet which was great and so then you were in San Francisco dancing with Suman and then you kind of started doing some project at the same time uh, yeah, I just, whenever I could, I started presenting work uh, in San Francisco, which was normally during the summer when dancers are laid off. So I guess I'd get my friends and, you know, we would present where we could. There's a festival here that used to always happen on this during the summer. Now it's a little different, but the West Wave Dance Festival and um, presenting in that was where Michael saw my stuff for the first time. And then Michael seeing... When he saw my work, he gave me the opportunity to then choreograph on Smew and on the company. Wow, that's a huge honor, huh? Oh, yeah. So, well, you know, when he was still alive, I was, you know, I was presenting a, one work a season with the company for the last few years. When they give you um, an opportunity to choreograph on a company, do they give you parameters? Like, I want this style, or I want this kind of music, or this is going to be how many dancers you have to work with? Or do you tell them what you see? There's an ebb and flow uh, on that. Sometimes, you know, you'll be told, we need a middle ballet in a three ballet evening, or you're going to be the closer, or you, we need an opening piece. And all those things kind of mean something. And what do they mean from a, from a non- informed person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, you you often hear uh, a ballet repertory evening described as a meal. So opening piece is going to be your appetizer, your middle piece is going to be your main course, meaty, weighty, you know, and then your closer is a little more of a dessert. Um, So would your opening piece be kind of like quick and simple and then your closing be more like you know, sugary. <laughs> Your closing piece is kind of like, ah, oh, ta-da. Like, you, you know, you, you, want, you want people to walk out of that theater just, um, just captured. Yeah, yeah. What they have seen. So you don't usually end the evening with something that's very um, quiet and introspective. Is that the opening piece typically then? Normally it's the middle, actually. Oh, the middle. Okay. Yeah, so, okay. you know, you want to start with you know, kind of getting everyone excited and then the middle, you kind of, you know, get them really thinking and, you know, maybe offer them this very introspective, beautiful thing and then kind of try to blow it out of the water at the end. Something like that. And, of course, there are eight million and two ways to do this. So um, I know, but I just learned something today, so that's good to know <laughs> next time I go see a show. <laughs> Next time you see a ballet repertory evening, you'll you'll you can see you can see if they followed this uh, this. All right. So anyway, um, you were offered the opportunities, and then you were doing one piece a year or one work a year for the Suman Ballet. Yeah, and then um, Michael was also great in terms of letting me go out and do other commissions. Um, so there was a company in Colorado that commissioned me, and he gave me. 
time off of work to go and do it. Um, I got the opportunity to go to choreograph on the um, at the New York Choreography Institute, which is a project of New York City Ballet. Um, and again, he gave me you know time off of the season to go and and do that, which is just huge. He was very much. Um, as I was becoming an older dancer, he was really trying to help build a bridge for me. Oh, that's super um, nice. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was lucky. Like, so going back to, like, when you commission, do you send, do you go to them or do they come to you or does it happen both ways? In terms of getting the work you need? Yeah, like outside of where you were, like Colorado oh. or whatever. A lot of times people approach me, um, but sometimes I have also, you know, uh, cold cold called, but I usually via email with a link to my work and try to introduce people to me and, and what I do. Um, and then with the Choreography Institute, is that on invite only or is it an ap- application or an audition or how does that work? That is an application process. Um, usually you have to get recommended by someone to apply. Is that how, sorry, I did this was years ago, so I'm not entirely sure anymore um but yeah I mean that was a great opportunity as well and how many how many choreographers get to go or is it just one per time or how's that work what's that whole thing work like first time I did it it was four dancers and the or four choreographers rather and the second time it was um three but like the second time I did it it was great I was in there with Liam Scarlett and Justin Peck who are both both exploded and, and all over the place doing work. So like just to. So they were the other, the other two choreographers. Yeah. And then what's it like you're there for how long and what's kind of the process there when you get to do that? It's two weeks and you get a lot of freedom. Again, you really get to do uh, what you want, what um, they're very interested in supporting your process. So um and then there's a very there's an informal showing at the end. No critics are allowed. Anything like that, you know. It, it's really about um, trying to foster choreographers' development, and it's it's just so great that they're taking the time and energy to do that. So when you go, you tell them I need X number of dancers, so many females, so many males, or do they say you can have access? Or how's that? Like, what do you do when you walk in the door and you're like, okay, I have a vision? Or <laughs> The most you're allowed to ask for is eight, which okay. is... And it's their dancers, the New York City Ballet dancers? It is, and a lot of times it's, um, you know, it's it's dancers who are younger and in the core or apprenticeship or apprentices, and they want to show, you know, Peter what they can do. So you get a lot of really young, beautiful dancers. That are just and, hungry. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, like, it's great because one time I, I did a piece on them, and then, you know, like a year later, one of the young ladies in my piece was on the cover of dance magazine. I was like, Brittany, look at you. That's great. You know, like, you know, so that is really- true. Yeah. And then do you get to like use musicians or is it just, you know, whatever taped music or recorded, I guess you'd say. Yeah. The program I did, we used recorded music, uh, but they um, had a flip side of the program. I believe that is with um, it's a, you use students from SAB, and I believe it's uh, also with Juilliard, where you actually use music from the people from a, a student at Juilliard. So that that's a little different. I haven't done that side of the program, but they have 
that's more music-based. But what a great opportunity for a, a young choreographer that's trying to make a name, you know? Absolutely. If you get in, I guess. <laughs> it's once a year? Uh, they do. Tw- I believe there are two. There's, there's two sides of the program each year. So. What a ni- nice start that you had, especially with the backing from your company. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, again, uh, Michael Smearin was, it's funny because his, um, his work is kind of known for being very accessible, kind of this mix between ballet and Broadway. Um, and, you know, my work is considered a, a little bit, you know, weirder. A lot of times it's a little more dark. Um, and, um, I had a great story. At one point, my grandmother, who was at the time approaching 90, um, I showed her a piece I made, and she did not like it. She just thought it was weird. And um, and she said to me, have you ever thought of being more like Michael? And, of course, I then go back to San Francisco and, you know, run and see Michael. And he's like, hey, how was your Christmas? I was like, yeah. You know, my, my grandma told me I should be more like you. And he just started laughing and he said, does, does she know you're doing very well being just like yourself? Like he, he absolutely um, encouraged me to have my own voice and not to copy him. Well, it wouldn't have been as authentic or appealing because if you're, I mean, it's like anything in life. If you're trying to be something other than what's within you, then it doesn't come across as well, you know? Exactly. <laughs> you, you. It's it's your goal in life to be able to be who you are, and even if the world doesn't always embrace what you, what it is. <laughs> You're right. You're right. And I mean, I am very fortunate that I've gotten to do what I love to do, and people. It, it seems to resonate with some people, and I seem to get work. And you know, it's 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 all very fortunate. I would probably be doing this the exact same way, even if I, even if I wasn't working out. So, well, you know, I mean, that's the thing is that's kind of the, the saying, and it's so easy to say, but hard to actually live. But, you know, the goal is to find what you do for free and then the money will follow. And that's, you know, somewhat cliche and, you know, it's hard to really believe it when you're trying to make, make a, or keep a household together. But at the same time, you know, it really does seem to, be true when you're doing something just for money it never works out the same way as if it's coming from something magical within you and I mean to have that even for a chunk of your life one chapter of your life would be a nice thing to be able to brag about (laughs) but anyway so you at some point in time did you leave Suman Ballet or what happened there um I I retired after nine years um and was that a hard decision or did it seem that your work with choreography was taking off so that it made more sense or kind of what's the thinking behind it at that point? Oh, it's a very hard decision. And, um, I, but I was basically, my body was not responding the way I wanted it to anymore. Um, you know, I, I, again, I was an older dancer and your limitations just, um, you know, start hitting you in the hitting you every morning. <laughs> I I was just I was starting just to be in a lot of pain when I was dancing, and but I still I loved it so much, so it was still hard to to walk away from from that aspect. 
Um, and it was scary because, you know, not having that consistent income as a company dancer, you know, would I be able to survive as a choreographer? And it's part of your identity of who you are, too. Yeah, it was huge. So um, I did, uh, after nine years, it, the other thing that had happened was that, that Michael passed away um, in 2007, I believe. Um, so I danced eight years with him and then one more year after he had passed to kind of, you know, be a part of the transition. And it was just, you know, it was the right time to, to, to step away from my role, um, in the company in that way. And then, um, Soya Fushil, who took over the directorship of the company, um, invited me to stay on as choreographer in residence after that so I it's great I still have a relationship with the company um you know I'll always do everything I can to honor Michael's memory which I feel like I can by you know creating the best work that I'm able to for those dancers so it's 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 a really nice way to put it it's yeah it's it feels good to I mean I've had a relationship with that company for 15 years so right well it's your family yeah so you, you mentioned that your works are, are somewhat dark. Where do you get your inspiration or where does it come from within you, you know? I mean, I, I can see where writers maybe get things, but it, to, to translate your, your experiences or your thoughts into dance to me is so foreign. <laughs> I can't, you know, so I, I, I'm fascinated by choreography. Well, they're they're not always dark. They were definitely darker when I was younger. Um, you know, it's a little more dramatic back then. Um, I've found weren't we all? Yeah, <laughs> I found more of a sense of humor as I've gotten a little bit older, which has been nice. Um, well, that's kind of neat that you have a legacy, a visual legacy of of your your journey and your own transitional phases of life. You know, uh, it's kind of neat. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's true. Um, but yeah, I um, I do predominantly take my um, inspiration from the music. Uh, so, in my musical choices are pretty varied. Like classically, you know, I've created to Bach and Mendelssohn, um, then more like new music, like Morton Feldman, Steve Reich. Um, so, do you sit down with music, or? Or is it that you might just happen to be, you know, cleaning your house and hear a piece and then all of a sudden pause? Or how do you find the music first? Or, or is the music just kind of a part of your day-to-day life? I'm, it's a part of my day-to-day life. I'm definitely constantly looking for new music. And again, because my husband is a musician, he's exposed me to some wonderful music that, you know, I never heard of before I met him. Um, and, you know... I mean, I've been driving in the car and gotten home and looked, you know, in the land before being able to look everything up on the internet. And at one point I called the radio station and said, what were you playing at, at 907? You know, um, the string quartet, who wrote it? Um, yeah, but just... Con- so, so when you hear something that moves you, do you all of a sudden start seeing the visual piece? Or is it... Or is it like, okay, this piece is moving me. I've got to create something from it. Or do you kind of find in your head you're seeing the the dancers? I don't really. It's more abstract than that. I don't. um, I usually start by seeing 
um, images. A lot of times they're natural images. It might, you know, it might have to do with, oh, oh here's a good story. Um, there was one piece I created and whenever um, the small section of music always, to me, felt like the image of a huge ship in the ocean and there's nothing on the horizon and there's a woman standing on, on the ship by herself. And that, that music made you feel that? That's what, that's what I saw every time I heard this music. So what that translated to is I created this duet with two dancers where they move very slowly from stage right to stage left. They were never allowed to backtrack, so they always had to be traveling forward. And she was never allowed to look at him. She had to keep looking out past him at this horizon point the entire time. And, um, you know, that's how that translated to me. And I never told the dancers this. I wanted them to have their own, you know, I didn't say you're on a ship, you're looking this way. No, I want, I really want the dancers to have their own experience and to make their own, you know, choices. And if I don't like their choices, I'll try to, you know, maybe steer them another way. But uh, it was funny because we do this whole duet and then like months later they heard me say this, this is what this duet, how this duet came to pass. And then the female dancer made a joke. She's like, oh, I just thought I was looking at a ham sandwich and I was hungry, you know. <laughs> Hers was not nearly as deep as yours. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's these abstract images, I mean, I'm, I don't try to actually create them that that the when I get too literal and you know if I would have put something out and tried to make waves or something it wouldn't have worked at all but if I can conduct, kind of distill the intention in the image and get that out through the dancers that's where it usually works best and I guess it is like a painting where everybody that views it interprets it different and sometimes you know, I could see one of a painting and based on what's happening in my life, I might see one thing and then two months later, something completely different. And I would imagine it would be the same with this type of dance where it's like what I bring to the theater that day as an audience member might might allow me or cause me to interpret your piece totally different. Well, I, I mean, we choreographers hope that, that yes, that that conversation happens. I think... Um, a lot of times people look at um, art, uh, look at dance and try to try to get it, try to... Well, I agree. I'm, like, I'm the same way. There's, but there's not a right and wrong way to interpret this. So as long as the audience member is having their personal experience, I am happy. Like even, you know, whether or not they got what I was trying to say, that's... I mean, when they do, that's great. Selfishly, like, yay, you, you know, you're on the same wavelength as me. But like, it's, but it's like giving someone a present. You can't give some force them to understand. Yeah, I mean, like, I could think, you know, um, I, I gave my aunt the best garlic press in the world for Christmas one year, and I went back to her house a year later, and she was still using her old garlic press that, you know fell apart in two pieces every time you used it. And I was like, oh, you know, you can't give someone a present and, a, and say, yes, and you're going to like this this way. Like, you just 
you have to give it to them with an open heart. And that makes total sense. And I, you know, I actually appreciate it. I do appreciate hearing it from a, um, a creator standpoint to that, that it's okay not to understand. <laughs> you know? Or or to understand differently. Yes. You know, and it's like anything. It's like if I had a fight with my husband before I, sh- you know, show up and watch something and, it, and there's an intense moment, I interpret it in a whole different way than if I just gotten engaged before I walked in. You know? <laughs> You're right. You're right. And that's, that's when, um, that's when it becomes a conversation, you know, um, versus just like, yes, you should be feeling this right now. You know, that's, yeah, that's not what I want. I want the audience to have their own unique, each member to have their own experience. And as long as they feel something, um, I, I'm happy. If, if someone walks away and they're ambivalent about what they saw, that's when I feel like I, I missed the mark. Now, do you, do you have your own company or how does it work now for you? I do. I have a small company in San Francisco. We're trying to get it to grow. It's called Imagery. Uh, we just uh, officially incorporated a couple years ago. Got our five one C three last year. So um, all that, all the administrative side of it is falling into place, which is great. Um, and that's wonderful because I ha- I work with the same dancers over and over again. So how many dancers do you have full-time now? Uh, well, they're not full-time, unfortunately, because we don't, you know, but we I have the same group that I, that I work with quite often that um, distills down to about eight dancers. And those dancers know me so well that I... Um, whenever we begin a new creation, we can kind of build on everything we've done together before. And I feel like that gives us the freedom to to push the boundaries a little bit more. I mean, one of those dancers I've been working with since um, 2004. So, you know, 10 years of creating together. Um, yeah. And it's, it's different when I go, because I, I do a lot of commission work across the country still. So if I walk into a new company... And I don't know the dancers yet. Um, there's a little bit of this whole getting to know you curve where they're learning my aesthetic and my language. But what's great about that is they might interpret something different, so um, differently in a way that kind of opens a new door to me. So both oh, that's true. Yeah, these um, two different ways of, of relating to dancers. I mean, both have really wonderful gifts. So what's coming up? What's, uh, tell us about some of your projects that you've got coming up. I know there's some exciting exciting work. I want to hear from you, though. Um, well, uh, this spring I have two major commissions that I'm really excited about. One's with Milwaukee Ballet, um, and I'll be starting that at the beginning of March. Um, and the other one is with uh, Smeon Ballet in San Francisco. And um, I haven't done anything new on those dancers for... Um, for almost two years, so it'll be nice to be there and creating with them again. And then my own company, we have um, we have something called the Sketch Series, and that happens in July in San Francisco. And for that, um, the idea with it is to offer established choreographers um, a platform to really risk 
So each I'll create, and this year I've invited Adam Hoagland to come back in and create on the company as well. And what Adam and I will do is we will both self-identify a risk before we start creating. And then... You'll self-identify what? Sorry? A risk. Oh, okay. So the idea is to push yourself out of your comfort zone as a choreographer so that you continue to grow. Um, And then we'll both use that as the basis of creation. Um, And then those shows are done uh, at a small kind of warehouse theater called ODC in San Francisco. So it's it's less than 200 seats in the theater. So the idea is that as opposed to when you're creating for an opera house that maybe has, you know, two to 4,000 seats and, you know, there's all this, all this money invested in the work, it becomes really hard to take a chance. So the smaller scale production, the idea is to take, is to really take a chance and hopefully that will open a new door to you as a choreographer. So yeah, it's a it's a program I'm really proud of, and this is our. Have you done that for a number of years now? This will be the fourth one. So wow. So what in the past? What have been some of the risks that you've kind of created around? Well, I mean, every da- every choreographer does a different one. Uh, so, for example, Val Canaparelli, who's you know this world famous, wonderful choreographer, um, came in last year and worked with improvisation for the first time ever as a choreographer. And it kind of was something he was always scared to try. Um, Myself, I worked last summer with text-based movement, which um, is not, as I said, my stuff usually comes from music. And instead I used a poem and created from the poem. Ah, okay. um, Which- That would be hard if you're normally accustomed to hearing the music piece. Yeah. Of it. So it, it's really just to, to offer choreographers a chance to really try something different. That's really neat. Yeah. Thanks. And then um, what would you see or, you know, not to put you on the spot, but, you know, kind of where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, well, in my wildest dreams, uh, imagery gets a little bit bigger so I can support these dancers better. They're such wonderful artists and I want to be able to give them more work, more pay, more benefits, all that. So for us to grow the company, have a better national reputation, and be able to tour a little bit, um, just to really get that on more stable ground. Because, again, these these dancers are so fantastic, and I, I want to... M- I want to be able to offer the dancer every tool I can that, so that they can be the best artist so what's one piece of advice that you've received that stuck with you over your career? You know, I think it's going to come back to, to that idea of really staying true to your own voice and, and not trying to, um, you know, from, from that conversation with Michael, um, not trying to imitate someone else because they're being successful. Right. Don't always listen to your grandma, right? Don't always listen to your grandma. <laughs> Usually you should, but not always. (laughs) And in closing, I do like to ask a few final questions to each of my guests, and it's fun to hear the different um, responses. But the first one is, if you could go back in time to your 13-year-old self with the wisdom, confidence, and lessons that you've learned along the way, what advice would you give to yourself? Oh, to have more of a sense of humor. Really, I was a little too intense and serious as a young child, and... um, and 
yeah, it's. And the problem is, is you probably wouldn't have listened to it. Either. Oh, of course not. Of course not. Um, and I'm sure that intensity got me, you know, got me worried. So, you know, it wouldn't actually change anything. But, um, but, but yeah, it's, a. Uh, there's a, I know what you're saying, but it's, it's, you know, it's, I agree, but it's hard to, it's hard to say that to young teenagers because they're, they know it all, right? <laughs> um, there's a great quote, and I'm gonna. It's it's it was by someone fantastic. It was either Margot Fontaine or Audrey Hepburn or some this you know some fantastic. Woman. And um and it goes oh it it's along the lines of always take your work seriously, but never take yourself seriously. And and that's that's that would be it. And with that same wisdom, confidence, and lessons learned, what would be your advice to aspiring dancers today? I would love for the for training and you know for this whole idea of right and wrong and dance to be understood maybe from a different point of view. Um, again, like it's not about being right. Dancing is not about being correct. It's um, there are so many roads to creating something sublime and that we shouldn't all follow the exact same one. I love that. And that's been one of the greatest eye-opening experiences with this podcast is I've learned from all of my guests just the amazing options and paths that you can take, but also the many paths that get you there too. And it does take some pressure off, I would think, if aspiring dancers are listening, it takes pressure off them that, you know, it kind of, if it's in your heart and it's your passion, you'll find a way to be able to live it, but not have to follow a certain specific path that everybody else is telling you. Well, my last question is about a motivational quote, but I think you already gave me that. (laughs) (laughs) So you read my mind. But Amy, thank you so much for your time. And if listeners want to be able to follow, you know, kind of any of your upcoming works or your journey in choreography and your company, where can they find you? Sure. We have our website is uh, AS Imagery for Amy Seward's Imagery. So asimagery.org. Well, great. Well, I will be sure to keep up and maybe um, when you get closer to here, maybe in Milwaukee, I'll be able to come see something. I'd love to see what you do. That would be great. I'd love to have you there. All right. Well, thanks, Amy, for your time, and have a great day. All right. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. And thanks again, everyone, for listening to today's episode. And be sure to tune in next week for some more words of wisdom and inspiration from my guests. And in the meantime, if you have any questions or comments or suggestions for new guests coming up, I'd love to hear from you. You could stop by my website at balancingpoint.com. That's balancingpoint, P-O-I-N-T-E, like the point shoe.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter or Facebook or even Instagram and leave me a comment or a question and I get back to you very quickly. So I look forward to hearing from you and until then, have a great day. <laughs>